Ah, good morning and Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Wonderful to see you. Thank you. So happy to uh, join you for this very special day. So um, every year, the story of Jesus' birth is retold. In fact, uh, as we know, the whole Christian year is designed or built around a kind of cycle of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. So that's repeated, you know, close on 2,000 times now already, the cycle. Why is it a cycle? I think because it's waiting. It's waiting for the return of Christ. So we go around again. Another year, and in some people's mind, he hasn't come, right? In some other people's mind, he has come, right? So... Um, Christianity is there, is waiting for the second coming, like a bride adorned and waiting for the return. But you saw how beautifully that marriage ideal is expressed there, the marriage of the Lamb, already in the time of Jesus, in those beautiful words of the hymn which uh, Uncle David read for us. We enjoy these stories of uh, Jesus' birth, and we can do so thanks to uh, Luke and Matthew, these two Gospels have these stories. The other two don't. But Matthew has the visit of the three magi, these wise men or kings. And Luke has the shepherds, the presentation at the temple, the stories of Simeon and Anna. It's probably the most enthusiastic, kind of romantic account, the story of Luke. And that's what we read this morning at our opening. And it's... Um, you know, what we know and relate in uh, uh, Christmas cards and the kind of pictures that uh, are there, the nativity plays. Anybody took part in a nativity play ever? Yes, always designated to a shepherd or something, right? So, or, or worse. Uh, and the like is, uh, you know, this kind of thing, is it's a, it's a good blending of these two stories because it takes kind of all the elements and puts them together. Why not, right? Um, children, I don't know how you define yourself as children. Uh, or maybe anybody. <laughs> mm, what's the French for to eat? Manger. Where have we seen that word before? Oh, a manger, right. So the manger, usually you only hear about a manger at Christmas time, right? So I'm not sure what I pictured it as being when I was small. This in the manger, I imagined it was, it was the name of this kind of shed or something, because that's uh, what they used on many nativity scenes outside churches and this kind of thing. But of course it means the uh, trough where the cattle come to eat. It's shaped like a crib actually, isn't it, right? So put some straw in there and you can lay the newborn baby there. But it does indicate it's not a proper house or room. It's a very humble choice, but it's a necessity. You know, divine principle and uh, True Father's teaching, they carry on a kind of modern uh, tradition of demythologizing, right? Getting rid of the over-romanticized uh, views and asking questions such as, how should Jesus have been received? If he was, as we acknowledge, the savior expected by the Jews and indeed a heaven-sent king. So, you know, we are asking these kind of questions, right? In a way, 
time-wise, historically, we are now allowed to ask those questions. Uh, it wasn't so good in times past to raise these kind of topics with your local priest, probably, right? But now it's okay. And gospel writers were very careful uh, for their own purposes and best intentions, really, to consider what to include and what to leave out, even to what things sit next to each other. Uh, they get some kind of added meaning by, you know, being just following this story. It's a bit like sitting guests at a Christmas dinner table, right? You want to get them kind of in the right place. It's all going to go well. You know, um, we quite rightly may have questions about timing when we hear the story. Three kings or wise men come to visit the baby, and we often see them where Jesus is lying in the manger. But then in the story, Mary is warned to flee with her baby to Egypt. That's in the Matthew story. And if she does that, then how can he be presented at the temple after 40 days, as in Luke's story? So, you know, it's a little hard if you try to be too exact about it. How does it all fit together? We're more used to asking in modern times, you know, how much is history and how much is myth? But mostly, we don't mind a bit of myth, do we? I quite like a bit of myth. Myth often contains profound truth. And an unusual source, uh, but anybody remember E.L. Wisty? He was the comic creation of Peter Cook. And he said, uh, a myth is a very accurate portrayal of what didn't happen. So the account that we read in Luke of the presentation explains the meaning of this act or this, this ceremony for all future generations because it's there in the gospel. And it says there, every firstborn shall be designated as holy to the Lord, and Jesus was a firstborn. And they offered a sacrifice, that is the parents, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now this wasn't specific to Jesus. Joseph and Mary were essentially just being good Jews. This is what people did. Um, however, interestingly, two turtle doves sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? It's not one we're singing in this service. Uh, circumcision would have been on the eighth day and presentation took place on the 40th day. So we see a certain resonance here with our unificationist traditions, right? Uh, we have that uh, eight-day ceremony for parents to offer their child first to God. And that's a beautiful, blessed family ceremony that takes place in the home. And it kind of moves that presentation idea forward to the date of the now lapsed ceremony of circumcision. In reality, the visit of the three wise men or the magi, what's sometimes uh, you know, celebrated at Epiphany on January the 6th, the 12th day of Christmas, uh, there's a feast and a celebration and this event, though, probably took place much later, in fact. Uh, you remember that the Magi's, Magi alerted Herod to the birth of this new king, a threat to his power, and it caused him to have boys under two killed. So that indicates a kind of wider time frame. Uh, 
um, more time before the need to flee to Egypt, maybe. That means that the kings in the manger, hmm, well, you might know it from your church uh, crib or your you know, high street nativity scene, but uh, probably didn't happen quite like that. For parts of the early church, this was the occasion that celebrated the manifestation of Jesus to the Gentile world, already as a child. And it's there in that, uh, those beautiful words from Simeon, the nunc dimittis, as is, uh, it's said in Latin. That is beautiful words about uh, Jesus um, to be a light to the Gentiles. Already, you know, at the time of his birth, he was a light to people far outside Israel, the rest of the world, really, that means. When we step back uh, from the history and we look at these stories, we can't help but be struck by the high number and the amazing quality of recorded spiritual experiences, right? The subject element in these experiences is God, the Holy Spirit, or angels as messengers from God. There's a difference shown, however, in the object of these revelations, the recipient of these experiences. Mary, the mother of Jesus, we're told, is the first to be told that her child will be the Messiah. The angel Gabriel speaks to her, and Luke says that she treasures the words. She treasures the words. But did you notice also Mary is puzzled by the divine message? She's perplexed when the angel greets her, and she must ponder the meaning of his words. These three words all start with P for some reason, right? So she's puzzled, perplexed, and she's pondering. And the shepherds, too. Remember the shepherds? They saw an angel, right? Or heard angels singing. And it says, they, too, were sore afraid. You know, what's going on? This is not an everyday experience, is it, right? Uh, they had this encounter with the angel of the Lord announcing Jesus' birth. Uh, but they did go straight away, as they were guided to, to the manger in Bethlehem and found the child, according to the story. Now, often omitted in this kind of nativity scenes and stories, but for me, in a way, the most touching or most moving is the story of Simeon. That was our third reading today. And you'll find it in Luke 2, 25 to 28. So may I read that to you? Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So he would meet the Messiah before he died. That was his revelation. Some time before, right? And guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents, that's Joseph and Mary, brought the child, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and immediately he praised God saying, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, 
to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of thy people Israel. And interestingly, what does it say next? It says the child's father and mother, Joseph and Mary, were amazed at what was being said about him. You know, it's like, almost like news to them. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Very prescient, you know. Not all is going to go well, you know, for the life of this child or even for Mary. It also continues, it introduces another person, an elderly woman called Anna. There was also a prophet, Anna. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then, as a widow to the age of 84. So, just seven years of marriage and her husband died. But she lived as a widow till 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and praying night and day. Isn't that amazing? She devoted herself to God in that way after the, losing her husband. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So in this Simeon story, we read that the child's father and mother, they also were amazed at what was being said about the infant. The expression that they were amazed and the following explanation of Jesus' kind of destiny or future. This all comes from Simeon. And in the whole scheme of the narrative, it's very politely, but obviously saying that much of this was not easily comprehended by Joseph and Mary. Rather, this story shows Joseph and Mary seeking to follow the existing tradition, presenting their firstborn son, treating him as such and themselves, you know, as a couple going to the temple to make a thanksgiving offering. You know, very good uh, tradition, very good heart to do that. And to do that, they would have made an offering, they would have paid for that. And the inclusion of the detail in the Luke story of the two doves is probably pointing out their lack of wealth as a couple. It meant they couldn't offer the customary lamb and one bird, which was offered on the, you know, when you're offering your firstborn son. Uh, they settled for the two doves. Again, respectful, indirect, but nevertheless, it's kind of making a point. It's saying something. What does the story show? It shows the spiritual readiness of this person, Simeon. He had been given a revelation that he would not die before he could see the Savior born. And as soon as this child, it could be any child, as soon as this child comes into the temple, he sees it, and to him, in his heart, it's confirmed, this is the one, right? And he says, it's very beautiful, isn't it? It doesn't make such a kind of, it doesn't make it into the nativity scene usually, right? But it's, it's, 
it, it shows you know, how people were prepared in those days you know, and how people devoted themselves in prayer for the coming of the Messiah as the uh, salvation of Israel. Very beautiful. Um, this recognition of Jesus as the Savior, it's not coming from the parents. They're just doing the work of parents of an ordinary child. But Simeon's revelation that he's had finds fulfillment at this moment. All that he has longed for, it's wrapped up in this baby that he now holds in his arms. This is joy, his fulfillment, and he speaks with such prescience. It tells us, you know, that being first to hear is not always being first to understand, right? So who's awake in this story? The story of Simeon gives us an indication of what heart to have. You know, not much could be expected of a person who's coming to the end of his life on earth, you know. You're, you're coming to end of life's journey and, you know, uh, not a great deal is expected of you to do certain things. But God is using Simeon in the setting of the temple that should, you know, with our kind of analysis of divine principle, we could say, well, maybe the temple should have become a home for Jesus. It should have been a place of education for him. And maybe way before his, you know, we know his public mission started at year 30, Maybe way before that, he would be advising and teaching and guiding people. You know, 30 is quite old, isn't it? <laughs> so he might have been educated and then educating in the uh, temple complex. And it would be a you know, suitable home because people could come from all over the world. It was a noted building. They would come there and uh, it was all geared up for, to receive uh, kind of... Pilgrims or, you know, religious tourists, really, from, from the whole region. So, and there was also a precedent there. If you know in the first book of Samuel, there's a story of Hannah, no relation. Hannah uh, is unable to have a child, but uh, she prayed and she was given a son, Samuel. And because of the extreme gratitude that she felt, she wanted to offer this son and she offered the son to the temple after she had weaned him, you know, could pass him over uh, to be raised in the temple. And of course, Samuel became a very key person, the last of the judges there, uh, crowning the first king of Israel, King Saul. So there is that story, and it would be in people's mind. And, you know, Mary would know that story. So if this is the Messiah, you might think, well, what shall I do with him? <laughs> right? Or how should I bring him up? Or who should I talk to about this? Or what kind of advice should I have? Or, you know, what more can Simeon tell me? Or who could he speak to? You know, a whole series of things. But we're left with these kind of, you know, nothing is, no threads are tied together. Nothing's there. It's just there. And we kind of for centuries have just enjoyed these stories and romanticized about them. But, you know, it bears thinking about, doesn't it? You know, that God had prepared so much for this moment, for the coming of Jesus. So hearing but not understanding is, of course, a predicament of uh, fallen people. 
as religious uh, people, we may think we know something, but do we really know? Do we really understand? Uh, this is a message for, for all of us. I may think that I know God. Uh, I may think I know who true parents are. But do I really know? To what extent am I a, a sleeper that needs a bit of waking, right? I don't say this judgmentally in any way. I, I say it really about myself. I know that if I really knew, that's a, a knowledge that kind of requires almost another level of consciousness. You know, if I really knew, say, who true parents are, who our founders are, if I really knew, then my life would be different, I would, I would guess. I, I wouldn't find things uh, difficult or limiting that I currently do. You know? I would be a, find some way to be a, a much greater, a much more public person than I'm finding at the moment. So, you know, it, it is in the end understanding how much do I really deeply understand. Simeon had certain qualities. Um, as I said, he's not given so much attention really, right? Um, I think myself that his inclusion is to show that he shares the same light of understanding that Jesus is to have. It's like they are kind of, they're absolutely in tune with each other, even though there's a huge age difference. So, uh, you know, as Jesus grows up, he's going to have that kind of sensibility and that those spiritual qualities and more, as our true parents themselves possess. Shepherds saw and heard angels, right? That's not a bad spiritual experience, is it? Right? You'd quite uh, you'd tell your friends about that one if that happened. Uh, and especially when it happens jointly, you know, you can turn to your friends, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. What, <laughs> what was that all about, right? Uh, Joint spiritual experiences don't happen very often, do they? I often wonder, you know, in the future, will this happen more? There's some key points in the Bible, that and the kind of um, transfiguration, these kind of key moments, you know, really intense moments. Uh, there are group spiritual experiences, and of course the resurrection is one of those. Joint spiritual experiences. So they can happen, but um, will they start happening again? Maybe at a G20 meeting or something, or a, you know, I don't know what it will be. Probably not there. Uh, but you know, to people who are ready, you know, will God reveal certain things very plainly through joint spiritual experiences? Anyway, that's a thought. Um, this experience for the shepherds, it was certainly worth telling everybody about. But interestingly, Simeon's experience. It's just that he sees the baby and he knows, right? So this is the Savior. This is communicated to him just instantly in his heart. And he says, now I can die a happy man, for I have seen my salvation. We recall what True Father said uh, about intuition. He said it was the higher spiritual gift. So our higher spiritual gift is intuition. With intuition, my kind of way of looking at it, there's no gap between experiencing and knowing. It's like they come absolutely together. With other spiritual experiences, you can experience it, but you don't really understand it or know it. But here they're absolutely 
one, this kind of intuition. It's like uh, seeing inside somebody's thoughts or their heart, as Jesus could do, as great uh, holy men and women you know, have been able to do. So if we just have spiritual experiences, many doubts or interpretations can enter in, can't they? And sometimes they do over time. Subtle doubts start creeping in. So what seems so clear, now you're wondering, was that really meaning this? Or was it meaning something else? Or was it really for me? Or, you know? Uh, and if it's just someone else telling you their experience, you might think, well, oh, that's very nice for you, but it's not really convincing to your own heart, is it? You need this kind of experience yourself. So many doubts or interpretations can enter in, but I would say correct intuition, that's more important, and it deserves a big place in this uh, uh, story surrounding the birth of Jesus. So God bless you. I pray that you can have a wonderful and a very meaningful Christmas with your families, with your friends, whatever you're uh, planning. It'll all go very well for you, and you'll be well prepared for a very I'm sure it'll be intense, it always is, isn't it, right? Intense and uh, successful year 2023. Thank you and God bless you.